Our Father and our God, we are thankful that we can gather together on this Lord's Day to worship you in truth and spirit. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would meet with us, for we know that all is vain unless your spirit comes to be our guide and to be our teacher. How we pray that he would move in our midst today to bring about that which only he can bring about, that which is of teaching us and convicting us of sin and bringing us to repentance. We pray, Father, that as we study your word this day, that we would have a better understanding of who you are and your great salvation and what you have prepared for us in the future. We pray, Father, that you would work in our lives to make us more like Christ. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us today. Those that are sick, we ask that your healing hands be upon their body, that you would be pleased to restore them quickly so that they might return to worship. We pray, Father, for those who would be away, that you would give them safety of travel, that you would bless their time of worship wherever they may be this day. We pray especially for those that would not be here due to lack of concern for their own soul, that you would bring conviction into their heart, Father, so that they might return quickly to worship and not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. We pray, Father, for our sister churches throughout the world, that as the gospel is proclaimed, that many would come to know Christ, and those who are yours would be sanctified by the teaching of your word. Work in our midst to bring honor and glory to your name. And all of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We'll pick up where we left off two weeks ago with verse 18 through 27. Mark chapter 12 beginning with verse 18. Then some Sadducees who said there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother shall take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise, so that the seven had her and left no offsprings. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, You are not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, they that rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. What is happening in Jerusalem is like a champion boxer in a fighting ring. And every boxer that enters the ring with him, he knocks them out quickly and then says, next. Here in this particular passage, we see that another group comes to Jesus to confront him only to be knocked out by his response. First, there were the chief priests and the scribes who challenged Jesus' authority. And they asked him a question. And Jesus turned the tables on them and he asked them a question. And they would not answer his question, so he said, Neither will I answer your question. Then we see that the Pharisees and the Herodians took their turn. They took their best shot asking Jesus whether to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And Jesus quickly shut them down as well. Now we have this group called the Sadducees trying to do their best to embarrass Jesus in asking a question about heaven. Now next time we will see that we are not through with the question. There's another scribe that will come to Jesus and he will ask Jesus what is the greatest commandment. 
And there will be others that come to Jesus as well and ask questions. Now to keep this in context, we must remember that this is cheese day. Only a couple of days after he had entered into Jerusalem with that triumphant entry, and now he is at the temple and he has been asked all of these questions. All of them are coming on Tuesday, so keep that in mind. It seems like it's a long, drawn-out period of time, but it is not. It's all coming about in this short time from Sunday all the way, of course, to Friday when he will be crucified. But as I've pointed out before, Mark's gospel spends two-thirds of its time on the last week and resurrection of Jesus. Now we see here, it's as though they are lining up in a secret room and they send out one group and as that group seems to receive their answer and they leave, that another group is pushed out the door to confront Jesus and try to trip him up. It's the Sadducees' turn. And their question is a question that relates to the resurrection. Now throughout history, the Jews believed that there was a resurrection. They had two dimensions as far as the resurrection is concerned. First of all, they believed that there would be a national resurrection that the people of Israel would be revived politically, that they would become a dominant force again. And of course, they believed that this was what uh, Ezekiel taught in chapter 27 in dealing with the dead bones there in the valley and that they would be revived. So they related that to that and they believed that Israel would be revived They believed that the promises that were made to Abraham and King David and other kingdom promises were dealing with national resurrection and included the Messiah, the son of David. Now, of course, they also believed this was a military resurrection, a military conquest to where Israel again would enjoy its glory as it did in many centuries before. But they also believed in a physical resurrection, that there was life after death. You can see this especially if you read the the Jewish Apocrypha. Many of the Apocrypha refers to resurrection of the body. And they believed that they would be transformed into splendor angels. Now, of course, the Old Testament clearly teaches about life after death, bodily resurrection. We see it in the book of Job when he says in verse or chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself." And my eyes shall behold him, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. The psalmist writes in Psalm 16, 9 through 11, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Shiloh, nor will you allow my Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And your right hand are pleasures forever. And then in Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's just a few of the verses that are found in the Old Testament that refers to life after death. Now, while most of the Jews believed in life after death and also in this national resurrection, there was this one group that did not believe in these things. It was this group, the Sanhedrin, or the Sadducees, that didn't agree with the majority. And they were constantly arguing with the Pharisees over this because the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection and the Sadducees didn't. Matter of fact, in the book of Acts in chapter 23, when Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin, Paul is very wise because what he does, he brings up the resurrection. 
And he causes the Sanhedrin, in the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees to begin to argue. He says, the reason I'm here is because I believe in the resurrection. Well, of course, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They said, man, if they're picking on Paul because he believes in the resurrection, then we need to jump on the Sadducees. And they began to argue among themselves, and Paul was set free. So he was very wise in dealing with the Sanhedrin on that particular occasion. But they directly opposed the majority view and did not believe in the resurrection. And the question they brought to Jesus is one that all of us must ask. Is there really a bodily resurrection? Now most philosophers in history have wrestled with this particular question. And they've come to the conclusion where they deny They may believe in a spiritual resurrection, but they do not believe in a bodily resurrection. Bertrand Russell, who was a philosopher at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, taught that as far as the body and the soul was concerned, as far as a human being, at the end of his days, it is no more than merely pouring acid down a lavatory drain. In other words, it is gone. It's over with. We are no longer in existence. We're annihilated. Now I want to answer the question, is this physical life all there is? By looking at this passage that we've just read. Well, first of all, we need to answer the question, who are these Pharisees or these Sadducees and what did they believe? Do you realize that this is the very first time that Sadducees are mentioned in the Gospel of Mark? I mean, here we are all the way up to chapter 12 and the very first time that Mark mentions them. They were the aristocrats, high society. They had lots of land, lots of wealth, prestige. They were what would be called the power brokers there in Israel as far as the Sanhedrin was concerned. Matter of fact, the high priest came from their family. Now, they had gained much power and wealth because of the Roman uh, occupation of Judea. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, had a very low opinion of the Sadducees. And he comments on their rudeness. He describes them as being as rude as aliens and having typically harsh spirits. And they were merciless in their dealing with other individuals. Now, their belief was that they only accepted the Pentateuch. Children, do you know what the Pentateuch is? We've taught it at Good News Club. It's the first five books of the Bible. Matter of fact, the very word Pentateuch means five books. So when your mother and daddy ask you this afternoon, after you've had your lunch, and after you've gone home, what did you learn from the preacher? You will be able to tell them at least one thing. We learned the word Pentateuch, and Pentateuch means five books. So parents, write that down so you won't forget the question to ask your children. Now, they rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They rejected the books that were books called historical. They rejected the writings as well as the prophecies. Matter of fact, they saw themselves as the conservative group because they rejected the oral tradition that the Pharisees held to. And they also acknowledged that Scripture was authoritative. If you heard someone say that today, that Scripture is authoritative, you would think they fed into the conservative branch. But we today compare them more with the liberals. Why? Because they did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the physical resurrection. To them, it was unreasonable. For men, stay dead. They're gone. Men have one life in the hearing now, and that's it. That's what they believed. And since they were annihilationists, there was no penalties. In other words, you could act however you wanted. Bad behavior, 
did not result in any kind of penalty after life because it was over with. The soul simply perished with the body. They also affirmed free will. And that man was the captain of his own faith. He was the master of his own soul. They had clearly been influenced by Greek philosophy. And they had no interest in what we call personal salvation through the Messiah. But yet they did claim that Moses was their authority. And they carefully observed the Mosaic Law. They knew the Mosaic Law. Of course, all they had to learn was the first five books, so they didn't have to worry about any of the other books in the Bible. So they would seek to memorize and learn what the Mosaic Law taught. Now, when Moses introduced them there, or when Mark introduces them here in verse 18, he introduces them as representatives of a kind of first century rationalism. He says that they were the Sadducees who said there is no resurrection. Now there's millions of people that fit into that category today. They fit in right alongside of the Sadducees. In other words, they live for the present day. They live their life as if there is no tomorrow. Rejecting the fact that God is righteous and that God is a sin-hating God who will judge all mankind after death. They reject all of that. They reject the Old Testament. They say that the God of the New Testament is a God of love and He would not send anyone to hell because He's not a God of wrath. That's the Old Testament. That God no longer exists. We, we believe in a God of love. And in reality, they are just like the Sadducees who reject the Bible because they reject the miracles in the first five books and they disregard all of that which is very clear. I mean, what greater miracle is there than the creation of the world and then making Adam out of dust and destroying this world with a flood? And replenishing this earth with Noah's family. And taking Abraham and making him a great nation through one son when he was too old and his wife was too old to have children. And then delivering Israel from Egypt by all of the plagues and destroying Jericho and the other nations. In other words, what I'm saying in the first five books you have miracle after miracle after miracle. They had to be totally blind. They had to be totally ignorant. And they were. They were spiritually ignorant. They could not understand what God's Word was saying about who God is as Creator and Sovereign God. But yet the Pharisees did not believe in any of the miraculous events, especially a resurrection. As Alistair Begg said, He learned in Sunday school who the Sadducees were. Now, children, here's another question that you will be asked by your parents. Who were the Sadducees? He said, he learned this in Sunday school, that the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. Did you understand it? Did you catch it? Sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. You're a smart group. I know you picked that up real quick. So now you'll never forget who the Sadducees were. Because they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. Now second, we see that the Sadducees come to Jesus with this question, which they think will make him look foolish. Now that's the typical mindset of a liberal. Those who do not hold... To their view, they view as foolish, as ignorant. In the same mindset today. I mean, we, I'm talking about us, are considered what? Well, we're considered a basket full of deplorables. We are considered those who are bitter and clinging to their Bibles and their gun. Are we not considered that by the liberals today? I mean, we're foolish, they think. We're foolish to gather on the Lord's Day in this place and look at God's Word and see what God says. 
Because we're not intellectuals like them. We don't have a doctorate like they have. We're not as smart as they are. Now what the Sadducees do here is they use what is called a reducto ad absurdum. That's Latin for reduction of the absurd. In other words, they use this argument to put down their opponent by pushing their position to the extreme conclusion to seek to make the opponent look silly. You've seen it recently if you watched any of the impeachment hearings. You have one side trying to look, the other side to look silly and crazy by giving these absurd, ridiculous questions and answers. I mean, it's just simply absurd to say some of the things that are being said. Well, this was absurd what they were saying to Jesus here. And the question was designed to make belief in the resurrection appear absurd and to make Jesus look foolish. But we will see that this backfires on them. And they are the ones that end up looking foolish. They appear appeal to the law of Moses. They use what is called the Leveret Law. Now, again, the word Leveret is Latin for what? Brother-in-law. So this is what we would call the brother-in-law law or the Leveret Law, which we read in our scripture reading this morning in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. Some of you may wonder, why is Brother Howe reading these verses this morning? Well, the connection is to this passage. That's why he read those verses this morning. And this taught that if a husband died and left no heir, the surviving brother or brothers must take her as their wife so that she might be able to produce an heir for the brother that died. To carry on the brother's name, to carry on his honor, to be able to receive his inheritance. So the firstborn son would be counted as the dead man's son and honor his name and receive the inheritance. Now we saw this, if you remember, when Pastor Tiago was teaching Ruth, remember? Why did Boaz eventually marry Ruth? Because he was kin, distantly kin, but there was one that was between him and Ruth, I mean between him and the family, and he didn't want, remember? He didn't want her. I wonder if they did what was said there in Deuteronomy. I wonder if she went up and took the sandals and spit in her face and all that. We don't have any record of that, but that's what Deuteronomy says is supposed to be done to her. But anyway, uh, Boaz was waiting in the wing as soon as he rejected her. Boaz moved in and took her as his wife because he was kin to Elaminate. Now, the Sadducees, they make up this story. I mean, it is truly absurd. It's never happened and it never will happen, what transpires in this story. This woman who had no children and married seven brothers, whom none had a children, any child with her. They all died and then she died. And we see here that they asked Jesus this question of the wife, she will be will, who she will whose will she be in the resurrection? Now, aren't you glad that ceremonial and civil laws—not all civil laws, but the majority that we find in the Old Testament—are passed away? I know. I know my sister-in-law that's here is probably glad in case something ever happened to my brother. She wouldn't want to be married to me. <laughs> my wife probably sometimes she doesn't want to be married to me. Sometimes I don't want to be married to myself. But anyway. At, that's like all of us in this room. I mean, who would want to take their brother's wife? Well, in the Old Testament, you had to. But nowadays, we're free from the ceremonial and the civil laws to a certain extent. Now, they thought they had Jesus backed up into a corner with this ridiculous story. They thought they had to succeed in making this concept of the resurrection look unreasonable, that they were able to make it look absurd. They were pointing out that the whole idea of life after death would bring total chaos. I mean, when they get to heaven, 
There's seven brothers. Who is she going to be married to is what they're saying. It's chaos. Everybody be running around heaven trying to find their wives or their husbands if they have more than one. John MacArthur says they were confident that his ability to answer their carefully crafted yet absurd question would destroy any thought of him as Messiah in the eyes of the people. And of course, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to make Jesus look ridiculous. Which leads us to our third point, and that is the answer that Jesus gives them to the question. Again, we see the wisdom, the godly wisdom of Jesus and his godly knowledge. There in verses 24... Through 27, he gives the answer. And in this, he turns the table again on them by asking them a question, which exposes how foolish and unqualified they are to even be teachers. Now notice, Jesus doesn't get mad on this occasion. He doesn't get mad at their foolish question. He simply answered their question by pointing out how foolish and arrogant they were in their thinking. And we can learn something from that. Now there are times that we can behave like Jesus and turn tables over because we're so upset with something someone has done. There are times we can get angry and it must be a righteous anger. An anger because they have offended a holy God. But then that's not the majority of the time. The majority of the time we must be like Jesus and respond in a godly manner. You know, sometimes we can always respond, and I've seen people where they always respond angrily. Every time they're always turning over tables, and that's not good. Sometimes we can do that with our children, and therefore they get the wrong idea. They always think that everything is major, and that's not the case. And we have to be wise in how we deal with our children. Sometimes it may just be a soft-spoken word we have to say to them. But there's other times we may have to lower the boom on them. It depends on the degree of the sin, where it fits in. And Jesus is looking at this, and he deals with this in a very honest and wise manner in dealing with them so that he might be able to make a point not simply to these Pharise- I mean, Sadducees, because he knows they're not going to listen to him. He's making it to the people that are around listening to his answer. And he points out that they didn't know Scripture, even they, they thought they did. I mean, look at what he says there to them. He says, you are mistaken. Literally, in the Greek it means to wonder. In other words, you have wondered... You have gone astray due to their willful ignorance. Now, there is truth and there is error, even in our day. I mean, most people try to make it somewhere in between that. We try to make it gray instead of black and white. No, there's truth and there is error. And these two never agree. And we must claim to one of them. And resist the other. Jesus didn't say, well, no one really knows what happens after death. Nor did he say to them, well, you know, that's a pretty good argument that y'all were making. You might have something there. Let's do a little bit more study on this to see if we can come to a conclusion. No, Jesus confronts them and he says, you are in Error. And sometimes we need to say that to people. Sometimes we are scared to point out that a person is an error. I mean, we're talking about spiritual life and death here. And there's times that we must point out that a person has wandered away from the truth. Literally, you are an error is you have wandered off track. You've gone astray. You're no longer on the path of righteousness. So they were wrong. Their core belief system was grounded in this particular era. And Jesus did not sugarcoat it. 
His response was a strong statement to them so that they realized that this was serious business. I mean, they had seriously erred at the very heart and center of their life. We have to realize that there's heresy and then there is damnable heresy. There's people that can believe heresy and not, they're they're still going to heaven. But there's certain heresy that if you believe that heresy, you are damned. You're not going to heaven. And we have to realize that. Now, we have to also realize that none of us know everything. All of us are wrong in some things, whether we acknowledge it or not. In other words, in our assessment of issues, events, people, there are times that we are wrong. Now, it may be hard for us to admit that, but there are times that we're wrong. And we must cry out to God for spiritual wisdom so that we will not be wrong. We don't want to be wrong. We want to be right. We want to line up with God's Word. That should be our desire. Now, it's one thing to be wrong on the essentials and another thing to be wrong on the non-essentials. We must hold to the fundamentals of the faith. Those things that are matters of life and death, spiritually speaking. And everyone that is a member of Grace Baptist Church has gone through the membership class. With no exception, everyone had to go through the membership class. And in that membership class, we teach one thing pertaining to this particular issue. That if you're interested in joining Grace Baptist Church, you must believe the fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentals of the truth. And we have them in our Constitution and Bylaws book. And we point that out to individuals and say, you must believe these things. And there's been times, not many, a couple of times where someone has said, I just don't believe this particular point. We'll say, well, you need to pray about it and you need to work on it. Because until you believe that particular point, you cannot be a member of Grace Baptist Church. Because that is fundamental, basic truth that you must believe. Because it comes straight from the Word of God. God has given us Scripture to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, and to point out to us what is true about God and salvation. Now, why do we believe in the resurrection? Because Scripture says that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead according to Scripture. And this means that He physically came out of the grave and later He ascended into heaven. We know that there were many who saw Him on numerous occasions before He ascended into heaven. And when He ascended into heaven, there were 500 gathered together to see Him physically go into heaven. We see that John talks about this in 1 John, saying that we touched Him, we spoke to Him, we ate with Him, we saw Him in a visible, physical form, in a tangible form, and they also saw Him ascend into heaven. So the entire doctrine of the resurrection is taught in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. And literally, Jesus rose from the dead physically. Look at what Paul teaches about this truth in 1 Corinthians. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 15. He says... For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. So see, he's making a parallel that Christ has risen, and because Christ has risen, the dead in Christ shall rise. But he's, he's using the argument backwards here. and says, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ did not rise. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. Then also... Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiful. So he's arguing that if Christ is not risen, then we are not risen. If Christ is not risen, then we're still in our sin. If Christ is not risen, we are very pitiful individuals. 
Because there's no resurrection, if that's the case. So he's arguing from the negative there. But he goes on and says, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. So he points out that Christ has risen sitting at the right hand of the Father in His glory. And we need to ponder on that. We need to meditate on that wonderful truth that He eternally exists as the God-man there beside the Father in glory. That He is our mediator, that He is our Savior, that He is our risen Lord. The scripture teaches that all that are in Him, all that are in Christ shall be with Him. 1 John 3, 2 states, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as he is, speaking, of course, when we get to heaven. So therefore, when you are asked by someone, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they have? Say, my God has determined all of that. I just believe what the scripture says, that Christ has risen, I will be raised with him, I will have a new body in the future, but I cannot tell you what that body will be like, I cannot tell you all the things will transpire, because the scripture has not revealed those things to me, but the scripture has revealed to me that there is a resurrection, Now, Paul goes on in that same chapter, in chapter uh, 15, and you've heard this read probably at funerals before, beginning there in verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, and mere grain, perhaps wheat, or some other grain, but God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh for men, another flesh for beasts, another for fish, and another for birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial one is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So he's saying even in heaven there's difference, see? There is one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also in the resurrection of the dead, the body is sown in the corruption, it is raised in incorruptible. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written that the first Adam became the living being, the last Adam became the spiritual giving being. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are made of dust, as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are made of heavenly. And as we have bore the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So Paul is explaining to us that it is spiritual. But yet, can anyone here describe a soul? No, we can't. I mean, what is a soul? We know we have a soul, but what is it? How can you describe a soul? You can't. We won't understand it, and I don't know if we'll understand it completely, even when we get to heaven, as far as the soul concerned. We just know that God is the one that creates man, and He gives him a soul. And we all have a soul. And the soul shall never die. It will either dwell in glory with God forever, or it will dwell in damnation forever under judgment. And we simply accept it because the Bible tells us so. 
So when you think about what will come, you will not be sad, you see, for there is a resurrection. And when we realize that we are resurrected from the grave with this new body that lives forever. Again, we don't know what that body is going to be like. But it's going to be new. And it's going to be glorious. And it's not going to be like this body here on earth. It's not going to have any pain, any suffering, and even any chance of any pain or any suffering in glory. Now, Jesus also told the Sadducees that they were wrong because they did not understand and believe in the power of God. There in verse 24, when he says, You are not therefore mistaken. You are not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. See, they have rejected all of the miracles. At least they weren't like the Pharisees who had attributed the power that Christ had to Beelzebub, Satan. But they did deny him. Not only did they not accept the miracles that Jesus had done, but they denied the power of God. And this led them to reject the life-giving power of God in the resurrection. Which, of course, is declared in the scripture. Surely, if God can create a world and man and all the living things, then he must have the power to raise the dead from the grave and give them new bodies. I mean, that's simply logical. Now, the power or the answer to this question is simple and it's straightforward. There is no marriage in heaven. Marriage is for the here and now, not for the age to come. Now, that might excite some of you. I hope it doesn't, but it it could excite some of you. In heaven, there's no need for sex, reproduction, or family to maintain population. There will be only one relationship between all the glorified saints, and that relationship will be perfect in love and joy. Now again, this is difficult for our minds to comprehend. For marriage to most of us is a great joy. To most of us, we want to continue to be married even in heaven. Because we can't understand not being married. Our minds just cannot grasp it. We cannot grasp us being without our spouse and not at the same time having joy. Because of the intimacy that we have with our spouse. I've often heard at funerals preachers talk about how a spouse is now with the one that has already preceded them in death. They're in heaven. And how now they are complete. But to think that is to be ignorant of what Jesus is saying here. I mean, all believers without a perfect, holy union with the triune God and with each other because of the eternal perfection of every person, there will be no need for married partners to be complete. That's why God had marriage here on earth. Remember, to make Adam complete, he gave him a helpmate. We won't need a helpmate in heaven because we will be complete. And we'll be complete with all others in heaven. Now again, this may trouble some of you. But what we must keep in mind is that whatever good thing God takes away from us here on this earth, He always replaces it there in heaven with something much better. Now again, that's hard for us to understand. But that's the case. It will be so much better than what we have here on earth. What I'm saying is that our relationship in heaven 
will be so much more sweeter and joyful in heaven that our earthly marriage cannot even begin to compare to what we will experience in heaven. It's like what C.S. Lewis states, that we are far easily pleased here on earth with things. There's things on earth here that please us, and therefore we think that that's the ultimate. And we forget that there's something much, much more in heaven that is much glorious. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. If we, content, if we consider the unblushing promises of rewards and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire too, not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambitions with infinite joy is offered us. When infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it means by the offer of a holiday at the beach. We are far too easily pleased. Do you see what he's saying? We're pleased with so much here on earth that we forget what waits us in heaven, what waits us in glory. Now, I think one of the reasons why there's not a whole lot more written about heaven and glory is because we would sure want to desire die quicker. We'd want to hurry up and get up there. So therefore, that's why hell is talked about so much in the Scripture and not heaven. But yet, what he's pointing out to us is don't be satisfied with what we have here and now. Look forward to what awaits us. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written... I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Do you hear what he's saying? Our eyes haven't seen it. Our ears haven't heard it. There's so much more that awaits us. There's so much more that is prepared for us that we cannot simply cannot grasp. Matthew Henry says, There are things which God has prepared for those who love Him and wait for Him. There are such things prepared in a future life for them, things which sense cannot discover, nor present information can convey to our ear, nor yet enter our heart. Life and immortality are brought to light through the gospel. Now, Jesus also states they erred in ignoring the implications of how Almighty God designated Himself. God does not promote Himself by declaring that He's a God of non-existent beings. I mean, He is a God that spoke to Abraham, Noah, Adam, Isaac, And Jacob, even though I didn't get it into order. He spoke to him. But he not only spoke to him, we see that he revealed himself to them. Remember, and he's using what Jesus is referring back to, he's referring back to Exodus chapter 3, when God spoke to Moses there at the burning bush. And he told Moses what? He told him who he was as far as the God of his fathers. Now, this Moses who he's telling this to, he also sent from heaven down to earth there on the Mount of Transfiguration to talk with Jesus and the three disciples. So he acknowledges himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose bodies had died and been buried but their soul lived on forever. And they lived with God and in God and God in them. Ken Hughes makes this observation. Abraham 
has everything about him that was Abrahamic. Isaac has everything that properly belongs to him. Jacob has everything that makes him God's Israel. These great men have lost nothing. Rather, they have grown and developed gloriously. They are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at their very best, and at least they will be their ultimate when the trumpet sounds. So what is he saying there? He said they all went to heaven and they didn't get worse. They got better. No one will be worse in heaven. We only have one direction to go, and that is to get better. So there's hope for all of us. I remember John MacArthur saying one time, he said, some people you will not recognize in heaven. He said, you won't recognize them because they will be so changed that you won't recognize them. They're not like they were here on this earth. And thank God that he does do that, that he changes us. So this bond is a result of God being a covenant-keeping God by his power, and it's greater than death. So God's covenant with these three men wasn't simply that they would live three score and ten years or unto death, but God promised that they would live forever and that He would continue to be their God. Jeff Thomas says, He wouldn't pledge Himself to those dead patriarchs as their living God unless the dead were going to be raised. God is going to reverse their death. They are going to have new bodies in a new world. Now, one of our problems is that we are so earthly minded. I mean, it's been said, you've heard it said, some people are so heavenly minded that there's no earthly good. Well, I must be honest. I haven't met many of those people. Have you? The most people I meet are so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. I must say that that's probably the category that I fit into. I would much rather be more heavenly-minded. I agree with Alistair Beggs. He said, I know in my own life that this is true. My problem often is that I am too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly good. Therefore, I have to work on being more heavenly minded. Now one thing the Puritans understood was the importance of this day. The Lord's day. Now day is a day, not an hour. It's sad that most people think the Lord's day is an hour, if that. I'll give the Lord maybe a couple hours and then the rest of it. No, it's a day. I encourage you to read Joseph Piper, not Piper, Joseph Piper's book, The Lord's Day. I mean, the Puritans saw this day as the market day for the soul. And they treasured it and they longed for it all week. My question is, do we have that kind of passion for the Lord's Day? Do we long for the Lord's day? Do we look forward to it? Do we wake up on Sunday morning and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Do you look forward to bringing your family to church? Do you look forward to hearing the Word of God taught and preached? Do you look forward to being with God's people on this day to worship? This day is to be a foreshadow of that day. What is that day? Heaven. It is to prepare our souls for going to heaven. I hope that it is your experience, even so often, that when you come to worship on the Lord's Day with God's people, that in expressing your worship to God corporately, that something happens. That's my desire for myself and for you, that something happens. That there's a changing that takes place. That there is a putting off and there is a putting on as you hear the Word of God. My prayer is that as you hear the Word of God today, that your heart would be stirred. That you would have a deeper longing for heaven. That you would have a less attachment to the things of this world. That you would look forward 
to singing glorious hymns about the world that is to come, to look forward to hearing the proclamation of the gospel, that something would happen here in your life that doesn't happen anywhere else except in God's house as you meet together with God and His people. In one sense, it's indescribable. But it's very personal and it's very spiritual. In these moments, our thoughts should be so channeled to give us a foretaste of heaven. Do, Do you realize that? That Sundays are to be a foretaste of heaven, what heaven is like. Rest for the soul which looks toward that eternal rest that is spoken of in Hebrews. So that our minds are filled with thoughts that take us upward. That cause us to look upon Christ and see what we have in Christ. That we are so focused on Christ that we do not worry about earthly things. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I mean, when we are caught up in the wonder of His salvation, nothing else seems to matter. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed To the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. As you think about that. If that does not stir you. If that does not move you to draw closer to Christ. Then something's wrong. As you think that all of your sins have been paid for. That they're no longer held against you. That you were righteous in the sight of God because of the righteousness of Christ. That you're looked upon as though you have never sinned. If that doesn't move you, I don't know what's going to move you. When you think about what God has done for us in Christ, it should cause us to worship Him more deeply and more fervently. That's the worship that we ought to long to have every time we come in those doors and sit on these pews and hear God's Word proclaimed. And finally, we must grasp that the state of death is not natural. Death is our enemy, as the Scripture teaches us. God created man to live. He he breathed into his nostrils life in the beginning. And he formed us in the womb to live. It is not, it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. And what God has made, he is certainly able to remake. To deny the resurrection is to deny God, is to deny His Word, is to deny His power, is to deny His binding love for His people. It is to deny His very character. As St. Clair Ferguson said, deny the resurrection and you become a practical atheist. Believing in the resurrection is not just the best hope for the world. It is what gives this world its full value. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And it's my responsibility as pastor, and it's Brother Tiago's responsibility as pastor, and it's Hal's responsibility to teach God's Word and pray that the Holy Spirit would make good use of it. That He would drive it into our hearts, deep into our soul. That when we go home, we begin to see how it corrects us and how it rebukes us and how it instructs us in righteousness. I would be glad if there were Sundays when we left this place convicted of sin. 
convicted of our ignorance. And we leave this place solemnly going home to meditate all afternoon upon God's truth. So that there is true repentance and obedience. It's the Holy Spirit that must bring about conviction. As Jesus says, when He comes, He will convict the world of sin. I can't convict anybody. It's the Holy Spirit that must do the convicting. And we must pray that the Holy Spirit will do the conviction. And these Pharisees did not repent when Jesus told them that they had made a great mistake, that they had wandered from the truth, that they did not believe in the power of God. They didn't repent. Jesus has given us an opportunity to change our mind in the way that we think. Just like He gave them that opportunity. But yet their pride was too strong and their hearts were hardening even more. And they were not about to submit to the teaching of this guy who did not have a doctrine like they did. What about you? How will you respond to God's Word today? Some sit here Sunday After Sunday, after Sunday, you hear God's truth, but you leave unchanged. You're just like the Pharisees. You're like in the parable of the sower. The seed has been sown, and it's quickly snatched away. How sad. You believed the lies of Satan. If you don't believe in the resurrection or in the judgment that is coming, if you don't believe that all who reject Jesus Christ will be cast into an everlasting hell, then you're like these Sadducees. Don't listen to Satan's lies. He tells you not to believe all that stuff And even if there is a place called hell, you're not that bad. You're not going to go to hell. You've got plenty of time even to, to wait and repent later. Enjoy this world. Pursue your own happiness. Don't, don't listen to what the pastor's saying. That today is the day of salvation. Enjoy your life. That's what he tells you. can't help but think about men like Kobe Bryant who last Sunday was killed in that helicopter as well as his daughter, 13 years old. Both of them, they thought they had plenty of time. I don't know what his spirituality was, but, but they didn't know death was coming, nor did the other, I think it was seven people. They didn't know death was coming that last Sunday evening. None of us know when death is coming. That's why the scripture says today is the day of salvation. Others don't believe in God's power. You don't believe that God is able to truly save you. You may think that your sins are too great, too many, that you're too bad. But Paul said that he was the worst of sinners. And Jesus Christ gave him grace. What about you? Do you believe what the Word of God says? Have you come to Jesus Christ in true repentance and saving faith? Have you trusted in Him alone as your only hope and righteousness? Have you looked to Christ in Christ alone? Why not today? Let us pray.
Father, how we pray that your spirit would move upon our hearts. Upon those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, how we pray that your spirit would change their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. and That they would cry out to you in true repentance and saving faith and know Christ as their Lord and Savior this day. And Father, how I pray for we who are Christians that we would be convicted for our earthliness, for our desires of the things of this world instead of the things in heaven, for our lack of desire to be more like Christ, for our lack of desire for pursuing holiness. Forgive us, Father. Give us strength to put off the old man and to put on the new man and to live for you and to go forth and tell others of this glorious salvation. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.